There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is no exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in a spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I ask the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Australia is back on track. I actually find it gobsmacking. Just dumbstruck. I'm going to shirt front, Mr Putin. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I don't think I know. I have no hesitation. That should cause great concern. Just sit down. Let's stick in your eyes. You're a classic space invader. A social climbing sycophant. He needs a mirror. I mean... (laughs) Fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. <laughs> Welcome to Democracy Sausage, the second last one for the year. I'm Mark Kenny from ANU's Australian Studies Institute in the School of Politics and International Relations, and I'm here with Dr. Maria Teflaga, as as usual, also from said School of Politics, where she is a senior lecturer. Maria. We're gearing up really for the last episode of, I mean, we've got some very good stuff to talk about today. We're going to be talking about uh, the Republic and, uh, and and by extension, I guess, the voice and, and also the Australian election study in a kind of a somewhat rare two halves episode of Democracy Sausage. Uh, but before we get to that, I was just going to mention that um, you'd be getting excited, I imagine, about next week's uh, annual awards. The annual awards, yes. We always have a lot of fun with that, don't we? And of course, it's an extremely rigorous process. Very uh, rigorous. <laughs> Definitely professional. Now, what what, what we're going to do there, as if, for those of you who haven't been part of it in recent years, is we go through uh, the, the political year, pick out some of the uh, key players and uh, and we award them with things. And, of course, some of the categories are somewhat bespoke, aren't they? Like most humiliating back down of the year or... That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So to that end, I think what we want to do, and I mentioned this last week, but uh, we, if, if you're if you're um, sitting here listening to this podcast and you want to um, suggest a, a particular person, or perhaps you might even have a, a a funny category that you think we should consider nominations for, then why not send that in to us? Uh, you can do that on our Twitter handle at APPS Policy Forum. That's at APPS Policy Forum on Twitter. Or you could email us at podcast at policyforum.net. And uh, in in the case of if look if if you uh, if you are successful in uh, in get in suggesting a a good category, then I think we might be able to we will be able to send you a democracy sausage keep cup. Ah, uh, yes, exactly. So you guys are funnier than us. So please um, um, douse us with your um, you know humor and uh, nominations and category ideas. Indeed, it's it's a lot of fun, and we'll have Frank Bongiorno uh, along for that. And uh, yeah, between the laughs, we um, you know, uh, and look at this face it, it's been a pretty pretty dire year in 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 some ways. We've had obviously ongoing pandemic, and we've had the the war in Europe, and you know, terrible floods and and various other things. But we've also had a an extremely interesting political year. We've had effectively three elections, South Australia just before the federal poll, then the federal poll, then the Victorian poll, which really have given us a pretty interesting indicator of where the two brands sit at the moment with Australian voters. Uh, and, and we're now into this uh, this big debate, uh, looming debate now, as politics winds up for the summer, um, what we're coming out in 2023 with um, looking at the, the voice, the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and the voice that uh, we will have a referendum on toward the end of that year. Before we get to our guest, which is Dr. Benjamin T. Jones, and we'll be with him in a sec, let me just make one other final point, and that is 
Uh, we do want you to subscribe to this podcast if you are not a subscriber but a regular listener. This is helpful for us in terms of uh, knowing you know, how many people we're reaching, but it's also a great way for you to have it uh, automatically coming into your uh, into your email or, or however it uh, however it works. I'm not uh, technically adept at these things. Really. And, it, and it helps other people find the podcast too. It does, yes. Yes, so, yes so, if you rate yeah. and subscribe. Yes, that would be uh, greatly appreciated. And it's an easier way for you to not miss an episode of Democracy Sausage. So let's go to the issue of the Republic. Now, it's a bit unfashionable at the moment to be talking about the Republic because of the aforementioned voice and the political orthodoxy is that, uh, you know, you can't put two of these big reform ideas, constitutional change ideas before the voters at the same time, because that will only guarantee both will fail. There are others, of course, and I've written a little bit about this myself, who take the view that they are not actually unrelated issues, that they go to questions of identity. Well, with us uh, is someone who is an expert on the Republic and on uh, Australian identity, Dr. Benjamin T. Jones from Central Queensland University. Welcome, Ben. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really good to have you here on Democracy Sausage after so long. We should have done this a long time ago and we'll be doing so again, no doubt. But let's talk about um, you know, the Republic because, as I say, you're an expert in this thing. You've thought about it a lot. You've written about it. You've done research about it. Let's start with why a Republic? Oh, that's a really good question. And often I find opponents of the Republic come in two camps. There are those who are ideologically opposed because they're actively pro-monarchy. But then there is another, probably the largest group is, well, what's the point of it? Mm. I suppose if I had to choose between an Australian or a British monarch, I'd choose an Australian, but I'm not that passionate about it. So I suppose advocates try to make the case on the one hand that symbols are important, even if it is only, and only in air quotes, but um, even if it is only mm. a symbolic gesture, that it is important that the highest allegiance and the highest authority in a democracy is the people and not a monarch. But Yeah, it's a very sound kind of Republican principle, isn't it? That the people are the final arbiter, uh, arbiters of their own destiny, uh, subject to a constitu- constitution, uh, and that uh, we, we complete that, uh, that democratic project, that constituents or the, the creation of a democratic nation by having that absolute control. That's right. So there's the symbolic argument on the one hand, but there is also the practical argument. Uh, Jenny Hocking's research has shown that there was at least uh, discussions among the royal family about the Whitlam dismissal and that people who were completely unelected and weren't a sovereign, such as Prince Charles, uh, knew about Kerr's uh, thoughts. And there's also uh, an argument that the way our constitution is written, if Britain actually were to become a republic first, then automatically their head of state would become our head of state. So if they had a president, uh, because how else can you interpret uh, Queen Victoria and her heirs and successors? So, mm. uh, and, you know, that may seem very unlikely, but if Scotland becomes a republic, it Uh, who knows what will happen in the United Kingdom. And it all sort of circles back to Australia's constitution should be self-sustaining and not relying on the events Mm. on the other side of the world. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it, Maria? Yeah, yeah. I I mean, you know, as someone who is is a Democrat and and a Republican, yeah, I just don't really understand the sort of appeal of monarchy in a country like this. You know, I mean, from a British perspective or an English perspective, I can see how the Queen provides um, stability. And I, I think, you know, with the passing of the Queen, we did see a generational kind of difference. And we kind of saw how the Queen and her presence clearly, clearly meant a great deal to a lot of Australians, particularly uh, sort of more older Australians. Um, and so perhaps it is a good time to sort of begin what is probably going to be a, a, a slow conversation around where is Australia now in the in the 21st century. It's it's a funny thing though, isn't it? Because it, it became immediately impolite to talk about the Republic at the moment, you know, because there was always this talk, Malcolm Turnbull used this term, he called himself an Elizabethan Republican at one stage when he was Prime Minister, which was a way of saying, we're not going to talk about the Republic. Um, but what he was actually saying is, we're not going to talk about the Republic while Elizabeth is on the throne, because we now accept that many Australians have a sort of a personal relationship with her. It's it's personal rather than something 
necessarily deeper and that uh, only it only becomes a, a live issue once she's no longer alive um, and yeah. which is which is interesting because then you get this kind of conundrum at the moment that she dies which is it becomes impolite impolitic even to discuss the republic right that is at the moment of maximum salience the transfer of regal power from by inheritance from from dead mother to living son which is the moment of maximum absurdity of that situation, really, for a Democrat, you can't talk about it. It's like the 2020 bushfires. You can't talk about climate change right now or the yeah, floods, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, I, I stole your thunder, Ben. Oh, I was just going to say that I probably disagree with uh, Turnbull, and it's not, not only him who has made that argument. I think Bob Hawke and quite a few others have said, well, the Queen is just so popular, so when she passes, that's the time. But if I can shamelessly self-promote, in 2013, I released a book called Project Republic and uh, Paul Pickering is a great friend of this podcast as Indeed, well. Indeed, my colleague um, Paul Pickering, a great he, friend. He has a wonderful chapter in that book where he makes the point that there have been a lot of really popular uh, British monarchs right as there have been huge republic movements, and there also have been some incredibly unpopular British monarchs. And history suggests that people do separate the cult of the personality to whether they support the institution or not. So if they support monarchy, they can put up with a less popular monarch. And if they support a republic, then it's in spite of it being a popular monarch. Mm. And so I think Turnbull may also have some uh, desire to defend his running of the ARM in that failed referendum and he may want to put it down to, well, the Queen was just so popular. But I think the polling suggests that Australia did want to become a republic there and it was more to do with the model not being one that was suitable to most Australians rather than uh, the Queen's ongoing popularity. Well, well let's go to the model, um, although let me just preface it by making this point. I think there was also an element in Turnbull's thinking, which, of course, we didn't necessarily know initially when he became Prime Minister, that he'd done this sort of Faustian deal that he wouldn't talk about Emission, uh, emission reductions, he wouldn't talk about the Republic, he wouldn't change Abbott's timetable on same-sex marriage. That was the deal with the right to get the numbers to replace Abbott. And so there was a sort of a justification there. It, it, had, it, was, it, had, it has had some weight to it, to be fair, um, but uh, it was also um, an explanation, really, of why he wasn't going to be talking about the Republic. And there wasn't any huge, and there hasn't been any huge momentum behind the Republic really since that failure in 1999. As you say, it founded on the rocks of, of sort of competing models. What's the model? You and, you and Paul Pickering, the aforementioned uh, Professor Paul Pickering, uh, came up with a, a proposal, which is sort of broadly speaking what the ARM now proposes. Can you just briefly give us, uh, give us that model? Sure. So the tension Paul and I found is between those who want this uh, democratic theatre, if you like, of the people putting their stamp of approval. But the minimalists also have a very sound argument that if you want to largely preserve our Westminster system, introducing an elected president who may feel that they then have a some sort of authority or a Superior mandate. mandate. Well, they'd have a much broader uh, franchise in a sense than the than any – I mean, in our system, the Prime Minister is someone who holds a seat in Parliament and has the numbers in the, in the, in the governing party room, right? Yeah. A um, delegated authority, yeah, yeah, as opposed to a yeah. direct – Whereas a directly elected president replacing the, the British head of state would have – Assuming they are direct elected, would have would be able to say, "Well, I speak for the entire nation. I don't know about you, Prime Minister, but I speak for the entire nation." And that sets up the sort of conflict between our existing system of governance, that delegated authority that um, Maria talks about, and 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 the kind of American system. And it's a kind of a an mm. un, potentially unworkable oil and water type system. Absolutely. And the problem then for Republicans is even when they've got the majority, if you go with a minimalist model, direct electionists will align with the monarchists to vote it down mm. and vice versa. So Paul and I came up with a hybrid solution, which its origins really was in the 98 Constitutional Convention because there were minimalist models and there was uh, and there were direct election. But then Jeff Gallup came up with a hybrid idea and said, why doesn't federal parliament nominate three to five people? And then that go uh, to a popular election. So we sort of built on that idea and said, well, let's also draw in the federation and have each state and territory 
nominate someone. So the first hurdle you pass is one of our democratically elected houses of parliament have to have confidence in you, but it also uh, puts uh, parliament at the top of the supremacy of parliament. And then the second stage then is a popular vote. And yeah, we're delighted that the ARM have adopted our model and they've also adapted it. They've made a change that also federal parliament will get three nominees as well. So there'll be 11 nominees and uh, the second stage as it goes to a popular vote. And so will there be a runoff or, I mean, you know, if you've got 11 candidates, very likely that no one will have a majority. So yeah, how, how does that work? Uh, it'd be uh, preferential as well. So, oh, yeah, okay, okay. And, uh, and, and then if the top person can't fulfil, then it goes down and yeah. down. And then mm. I, th- I think it also it, goes does- to, if all 11, then it goes to the longer serving uh, governor and uh, so forth. So there's fail safes um, yeah, with, within it. Does it mean, though, just being devil's advocate, does it mean that someone with a relatively low primary vote could end up being, you know, someone who might have finished fifth or sixth or eighth in the list of 11, but who has managed to snare the second preferences of a bunch of others? I mean, could we end up with sort of Steve Fielding as... as uh, <laughs> oh, no, I don't think so, because there's not the way that quite the way those, that, that kind of preference system well, works. Well, 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 it's as likely as in a lower house competition for someone yeah, fifth or a, sixth to um, end up, I mean, it's no, possibly the, second or third. The stakes are a bit uh, higher than that. Oh no! I mean the likelihood of someone that yeah. low in the primary because of the way because um, of the way the preferences flows, right? It, it, it sounds like it is exactly like how you vote in the lower house, and so as Ben has sort of said, you, you probably have to come second or third at the absolute outset, mm. out, uh, outside to be able to actually. I feel win. like being a little bit defensive here and actually pointing out Paul and my model actually had just first past the post, but this is one of the ARM's changes to it, mm-hmm. and I suppose because they're worried that someone would actually end up getting sort of you know twenty two percent, which is which which is better than someone else's 21 and everyone else was, you know, close there too, but no one's got anywhere near a majority. Yeah, but also to keep it consistent, I guess, with how we vote in lower house elections and uh, what what people are used to, I suppose, in Australia. So how, how where are we now on all this? Because as I mentioned at oh, the start- can I, can I just throw in also 22% is uh, higher than what King Charles got. So it, it still would be more democratic, I think, even if someone did get in with that. Well, anything would be more democratic than inheriting a leader from another country. I mean, who happens to, you know, by virtue of birth has the job. I mean, yeah, I agree. It, it, it's an improvement, but- but you know we need to be ready for these sorts of these sorts of retorts. I mean, these arguments are are yeah, important absolutely. because because there was a lot of good intention in 1999, and we are now sitting 23 years later, effectively, uh, with the republic having been, you know, politically impractical right through that period, and arguably still is. I mean, that's the other point to make here. The real the real challenge before us constitutionally in 2023 is the voice. The government's made it quite clear, um, and so where, where are we with the republic? Is I mean, does it does the republic now hang on what happens with the voice to parliament? Uh, I I wouldn't go that far. I would say that it would be very uh, a very negative outcome for the prospects of a republic if the voice doesn't get up. I think a successful referendum on the voice will remind Australians that the constitution isn't wholly writ. In fact, every single decade of the 20th century, there was at least one referendum. And we're actually in a unorthodox period now where governments have given up uh, on trying to change it. And part of that is the hyper-partisanship of the mm. last two, 99, and especially 1988, where you had a popular Labor government mm. who were putting in popular Was that the four-question one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, including just guaranteeing that they'd be free- fair elections. That got knocked back um, with the (laughs) counter-argument being, oh, well, leave it to the states. That's the Commonwealth trying to impose its will. It was quite Machiavellian. And the Liberal Party had actually supported some of these things, uh, four-year terms and reducing the Senate um, to four-year terms, having them simultaneous. So these were pretty logical, pretty Mm. popular proposals. And Peter If and John Howard really showed how if you make it party political, you can be 
I'm really rejecting a hawk referendum. I'm not even really paying it. Like recognising local government, it's something uh, liberal people have also put forward. And even, uh, I'm conscious of time, but even going back to 1946, another very popular Labor government just gone through the war. But uh, Menzies basically said, vote yes for one and no for the other two. And such is the power of the opposition that that's exactly what people did. Even though nationally, all three actually had a national majority, but you only, that that spoiler role is so potent, I guess. And that's the real fear for for the voice and the republic. Yeah, because every referendum has to have that double majority, right? Yeah, it has to have a majority of votes nationally and a majority of states, uh, four of the six states. Um, we, we, we talk about the uh, the Republican referendum in 1999 as the last one, right? So, uh, which it is. What that actually means, people need to remember, is that you had to have been born basically in the 70s to vote in it. I mean, you could have been born as late as sort of 81. Yeah, no no one under 40. I'm, yeah. I'm very conscious of this because I was 17 and sort of six months at the referendum, so I was very annoyed I couldn't vote in it, but anyone younger than me, basically. Yeah. So, so yes, it went down. It does show the machinery makes it very hard for, uh, f- you know, for uh, re- a constitutional change to occur, as you said, Maria. Um, but there have been a lot of changes. That's a lot of voters washing into the system since essentially since 1980, 81, yes. uh, younger voters. There have been big changes to the way information works, political debate works. We've seen an erosion of the authority of the major party blocks. So we might see – so those old rules about, you know, you have to have bipartisan support because those big parties command significant blocks of votes uh, and information flowing differently, younger voters coming in who are more progressive, they may put all – you know, put all of those um, – those restrictions into a slightly different state, a weakened state. Yeah, I mean, I also think we're we've like uh, culturally kind of coming to a point where you know our society, our political society, has come to a recognition that the 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 shop needs a bit of a renovation. Mm. You know, like um, you know, the system still works quite well, but it's not delivering the right outcomes or not satisfying enough people. And 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 we've seen that in the way the party vote has, has changed, right? Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a bit. I mean, you know, so so there might be a bigger appetite right now um, for that kind of renovation. But I do agree with, wholeheartedly with Ben. If, if the voice goes down, I don't see the government wanting to take another risk on a constitutional adventure, in essence, that oh, misadventure, right, that doesn't pay off because the amount of kind of capital that they need to expend and and the amount of um, political attention and oxygen it takes away from other sort of pressing issues is something that they will have to kind of weigh up, right? And the, the final sort of thing I wanted to, to make a note of is there's been some research done by a, a colleague at uh, Sydney University, Luke Mancillo, who, who's essentially been able to sort of show that popularity for the, the monarchy kind of corresponds with the the sort of salience of um, the young royals in the news, mm, right? Mm. So, so in essence, um, you know, you're coming into a good season, Ben, because the older, uh, the sort of, I guess, the the senior royals is now Charles, and his children are kind of getting older and crustier, and um, <laughs> and Harry and Meghan, whilst you know, like it's not exactly a good news story, right? There's a lot I mean, of they're Republicans of, themselves, from what I can well, tell. Well, indeed, right? They're not they're not really helping the firm, as it were, and the children are too young to be getting married and having spectacular weddings and fashion sort of uh, shoots and things like that. So, 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 you know, on a on a slightly cynical kind of level, you know, the next ten years might be the prime the prime time for salience of this to go it, it, go down in the direction I you're, think those you're interested in. sorts of in. things give sometimes an excuse for the media to talk about it, but I, I still think Australians are reasonably serious when it comes to referendums and they can put aside the popularity or if there have been some cute photos of a royal baby or a wedding. But the, the point you were making before about Labor not wanting to risk it if uh, if the voice goes mm-hmm. down, I would probably just add a asterisk next to that, mm. except if the Liberal Party offer bipartisan support, because mm-hmm. then it would be a totally different kettle of fish, Absolutely. and especially if so uh, Dutton and the right- <laughs> So would the Liberal if, Party it, be a different kettle of fish? Yeah. If, if Dutton and the right are unsuccessful at the next election, especially if the moderates have a new ascendancy and they realise they do need- I mean, there is already, I, I mean, I would say probably close to a majority. Certainly the- I mean, it's one of the things that splits or traditionally split the right and 
and uh, moderate factions, as if you were a Republican. And it's well, uh, it the national. There were still some have... on the right who there were some on the right who were Republicans as well. I mean, the, the problem with this that, is that, that's true. The, the, let me put it to you like this: though. isn't the problem really with the Republic that I mean, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but that unlike the Voice and some other things, the Republic doesn't actually matter. You know, like I know that you think it does, and I know that I think it does, but. A lot of people would take the view that the reason it sort of went down in 1999 was that at the end of the day, people weren't convinced that the that the change itself amounted to anything that was worth taking a risk on. Uh, you know, because it is a hard argument to make. You know, the best you've got really is, you know, we want to complete the democratic project. We think Australia should be wholly self-contained in a legal and constitutional sense. You know, these are sort of elite arguments at one level. They're not they're not the sort of they're not retail bread and butter will change your life type arguments. So perhaps this offers hope for change on the voice because it's a moral question, it's a it's a question of deep conscience really and of and of social and 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 substantial justice. Whereas the republic is it's a bit like painting the house. Do we need to paint the house? Do we need to not paint the house? I mean, you can make an argument that the house would look better, but at the end of the day, it's the same house. Uh, sure. I'd probably challenge you on a little bit of that, uh, m- mainly that there were so many passionate Republicans who thought about and felt about it strongly enough that they joined the monarchist camp because they felt that strongly that there needed to be a direct election. It certainly wasn't that people were indifferent. There were incredibly fiery scenes at the 1998 Constitutional Mm. Convention between fired up uh, people like uh, Clem Jones and Ted Mack Mm. and Phil Cleary uh, across the floor from uh, Turnbull and the ARM Republicans. Okay, well, everyone you've just named is a member of the elite from what I can tell. Well, it it had um, incredible media coverage at the time and it was, you know, it was, I mean, even as a 17-year-old going to school, this was just the hot topic. People were invested in it. And there's a natural momentum to it. And uh, it sort of peaked around 1996 and Paul Keating, um, you know, perhaps with a bit of ego, well, definitely with a bit of ego, has (laughs) opined that if if he'd won the 96 election, we'd be a republic now. But I think there's probably something to that because it was a natural wave. And I've brought with me, we'll have to take a photo after the session, uh, my Blinky Bill uh, Republic by 2001 t-shirt. And there was sort of a sense with the symmetry of 2001. Mm. So it was something that- was, yeah. It it was something that genuinely captured the public imagination in the late 90s. And it's sort of waiting for the right time for that to come back. Because it seems, certainly since then, it seems like, well, who cares? It wasn't that important. Yeah, It's kind of interesting to me, and I promise it'll be quick, is that- um, you know, in the past, um, questions of nationalism and national identity, I think, did have like a passionate kind of moral dimension. Um, you know, like a, a true people can articulate itself in a clear and coherent way. And, and and I think it is safe to say that over the last sort of 50, 60 years, nationalism has had a really bad rap, uh, particularly amongst, I guess, what we would call the left. Um, and and perhaps that is why the Republican movement has sort of struggled having exhausted that wave, right, that Ben just spoke about, to reignite this debate because, you know, perhaps it isn't attached to a sense of of self. And, and you know, you were talking about elites, Mark, you know, I mean, you know, it's safe to sort of say that, like, according to, to all of our survey data, that uh, people from more modest backgrounds are much more likely to think in nationalistic terms. We can see that in the, the politics of mm. uh, the LNP. And so, Perhaps that's the way that this conversation needs to be yes. reignited and reconfigured, you know, to speak to to a broader audience than those of us who are sort of interested in the kind of mechanics of the constitution and theoretical arguments of completing our democratic this project. Is, this is a very good point, you know, like, the, and, and in fact, if you're interested in these, some of these issues, uh, go to the current issue of Me Engine where I have an essay uh, dealing with this idea of toward going, moving towards a progressive patriotism of the, of the left actually taking back the term. I mean, after all, 
why does the right get to call themselves patriots when they believe in having a foreign head of state? It's a, it, it's a, it's a crazy concept. Can I just quickly throw in as well, um, taking it away from the elites to the more popular level, another thing about uh, the 99 referendum was leading up to the 2000 Olympics and you've got a sports mad country and it was part of that sort of flag yeah. raving, waving thing. And I think it's a really good development for the ARM to now have former Socceroo who has uh, Craig Foster as head who has that sort of sports. And actually Peter Fitzsimons, another sports great. Uh, uh, I think the membership, something like Times by five under when he was in there. Mm. So uh, I think uh, sports and patriotism and that kind of yeah, yeah, whipping that up again probably is a way to take it from the elite to a broader level. Yeah, I agree. And I think Craig is a uh, an extremely principled person, a very gifted uh, um, uh, explainer of things, um, communicator, uh, done some fantastic work on behalf of refugees and human rights, was the 2021 Australia in the World Lecture for the Australian Studies Institute and, of course, is the face of... Um, very much the face of SPS's current coverage of the World Cup, which is uh, might explain why I'm occasionally a little muddle-headed. Uh, but uh, look, anyway, uh, let's end on that note because we have to. We're running out of time, uh, but it's been a terrific discussion. Let's hope that uh, these kinds of uh, these kinds of ideas about how to communicate with the broad mainstream are front of mind for those who are advocating on behalf of the the voice in particular, because uh, the. The, the argument really needs to be one with people who have not engaged with the question yet. Uh, and there is a very, very strong argument for doing this. There is no good argument for not doing it that I can see. And, uh, but, but, you know, we have to respect that some people, many people will have not engaged with it. And the trick that, that, the, the opportunity, the responsibility is to coax those people into, into the yes camp with reasoned, respectful argument, not with the sort of, nonsense that we've seen uh, sort of uh, breakouts of silliness and and vituperative and personalized debate that we've seen uh, um, happen you know as a result of the Nats prejudicially determining their position and you know people attacking Linda Burney and go forth so forth um, Ben thanks very much for being on democracy sausage and for airing these issues my pleasure thanks so much and we'll have you back again next year because these issues are, are very live both the, the Republic and the, the sort of broader question of Australian identity that is in contest as we were just seeing. But for now, thanks for, for being on Democracy Sausage. My pleasure. Thank you. And Maria, we'll be back in just a moment with a discussion about the Australian election survey. Ooh, goody. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, as I mentioned before the break, we've had a little bit of a changeover of talent. We now have with us uh, Ian McAllister. He's Distinguished Professor in the School of Politics and International Relations here at uh, the ANU. And with us also is Dr. Sarah Cameron, who is a Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at Griffith University. And both of these fine scholars are involved in the Australian Election Study, which is the longest running uh, survey of uh, electoral trends and outcomes and the the data that comes from Australian elections uh, that is running in Australia. So welcome to you both. Hello, Mark. Thank you. Uh, so look, tell us a little bit about this. Perhaps I'll go to you for this first uh, opening question, Ian. Uh, tell, what, what, is, what, what are the key findings, do you think, that come from this election survey? There's been a bit of, uh, you know, we've seen a bit in the, in the media about it in terms of the unpopularity of Scott Morrison. Uh, I, think, uh, I think you found that he's the least popular leader since... 
Well, since the survey's been around, is it? Yes, since 1987. The value of the survey is it provides a snapshot of what happened in the election. So we look at voting patterns, why people changed their vote or why people stayed with a particular political party. And then because we've been tracking all this over a long period of time, we're able to look at long-term trends. So it has very significant implications, particularly in this election, for the future of the major political parties, how they go about maintaining their uh, dominance within the electoral system. In terms of this election, well, there was three things that really mattered. One was leadership. You've mentioned Scott Morrison's on popularity. He was the least popular leader since 1987. And there was really quite a significant decline in his popularity between 2019, 2022, one of the most, uh, one of the greatest declines in popularity we've ever seen in the election study. And it kind of, one imagines it hasn't recovered a lot since, given what's come out since the election, but I guess that's outside your scope. Uh, but anyway, I interrupted you, John. Well, the second thing was the pandemic, and people were concerned about the pandemic. When we asked people about the election issues, only 4% mentioned the pandemic as being their major concern in the election. However, the pandemic was seen as being not handled well by the coalition government in the second year. And that had an effect of imprinting this uh, image of lack of performance on the government, which they took to the election. And the third factor in the election was simply lack of economic performance by the government. They were seen to be deficient in terms of looking after the national economy. People were very pessimistic about it. In fact, the level of pessimism pessimism was second only to the early 1990s recession, the recession we had to have in Paul Keating's words. So the, these three factors, leadership, pandemic, lack of economic performance, these all reinforced one another and that largely accounted for the liberal loss. And it really was a liberal loss rather than a Labour win. Uh, Dr. Sarah Cameron, what does it tell us about the sort of longer term trends that we see in um you know, from this data, you know, we, we hear a lot about the decline of the parties. Do, do the data support the uh, overall contention that parties are dwindling in their dominance of the political system? Thanks, Mark. Absolutely, we do see diminishing support for the major political parties, and we've been observing this over a number of elections now. So the conditions for the unprecedented success of independence in this election have actually been brewing for some time. Political partisanship reached record lows in this election at just 30% for the Liberals, 28% for Labor, and one in four voters do not have a political uh, party identification, and that's the highest that it's ever been. We also see an electorate that is becoming more volatile and more unpredictable. We see that across many indicators. For example, 37% said that they consistently vote the same way. That's the lowest that it's ever been. A record high 36% said they considered voting, considered changing their vote during the campaign. We also see voters making up their mind about how they're going to vote closer to election day and fewer and fewer voters using the how to vote cards when they cast their ballots. So we're seeing vo that voters have become increasingly detached from the major political parties. That alone is not enough to see a different outcome because we had those conditions already in the 2019 election. But what was different in this election was that, at least in some seats, there were well-funded, well-organised independent campaigns to provide a viable alternative for voters to support. Well, wow, that's Sarah. That's actually quite fascinating. Uh, I have like two two questions that relate to that, and the first is to sort of talk a bit more about the teals, right? Like, um, you know, we do know that there's been much made of uh, women, in particular, liberal voting women moving over to the teals, and then you know some strategic voting done by Greens and uh, Labor voters in those seats. But from the the AES data, can we actually kind of get a sense of which might have mattered more, or were they required together? Or another way of asking that is you know, without that sort of 18% change in the Liberal Party vote, could they have won those seats? Well, we look at the characteristics of the Teal voters in 2022 and how they voted in 2019. And so less than one in five Teal voters voted for the coalition 
in the previous election. So the narrative that Teal voters are disaffected Liberals is only uh, partially supported. We also see that 55% had previously voted for Labor or the Greens in the 2019 election. So more of the Teal voters were tactical Labor or Greens voters getting behind the candidate that they thought had the best chance at unseating the incumbent Liberal. Okay. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And my second question, and, and you know, maybe you or, or Ian, I don't know, whoever feels better able to to, to answer this one is, um, can we kind of unpack a bit more of this sort of what is actually going on with party identification? Like, you know, isn't, isn't it correct, like when the survey started, you know, around 80% of Australians would have identified with a political party? So the decline is profound. Yes, the decline, perhaps not profound, but it's been going on from election to election. Decline of party identification is something that's been happening around the world over a long period of time. It's to do with the expansion of higher education. It's to do with generational change, media, the personalization of politics, a variety of factors. People are less trusting of political parties, uh, to some extent more alienated. And of course, party memberships are becoming much older. People not joining political parties are seen as not being very attractive to younger people. In Australia, until relatively recently, we've been somewhat isolated from this uh, for two reasons. One, compulsory voting. Mm -hmm. And secondly, because we've got three-year elections. And if we add in state elections, it means in Australia, people are voting about once every 18 months on a compulsory system. So you've got 95% of the population turning out to vote every 18 months, which means they need some form of party queue or it's being reinforced all the time. And we know from the international research that the more frequently people vote, then the more likely they are to have a party identification. But the whole process of people being less rusted onto parties is starting here and it's becoming quite significant in terms of driving this electoral volatility that Sarah is talking about. And Sarah uh, used the term, uh, I think she said that the electorate's becoming more volatile and more unpredictable, which I suppose is uh, the, the process you're describing there. That is people becoming unbolted from those big constellations and and therefore being on the move, at least potentially on the move as voters. Is another way of saying that, though, just to put it in a sort of a a positive uh, interpretation on it, that the democratic system is becoming more responsive? That is to say that people can't be taken for granted. They're not just moving in blocks now, that they're becoming more responsive to the issues and the candidates that are being put before them in those elections. We can call it volatility, which it is, but it's also uh, perhaps not a bad thing. Well, what what normally happens in elections is when there's a third party vote or people vote for independent candidates, they tend to do it once or twice, maybe the course of a voting lifetime. And it's very much a protest vote. People don't like a particular leader or they don't like a particular policy. And then after this process, they move back to their normal party because people are less rusted on to parties. They're doing this more frequently, and we see that in terms of a lot of our panel data, and also we go back, look at people's voting history and so on. It still hasn't progressed to the extent that people are voting very instrumentally by evaluating policies very closely and saying, how is this going to benefit me? How is it going to benefit the country? It's still much more expressive in the sense they're reacting to a particular leader or something they don't like within a party and moving because of that. But if we think about the election, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, Maria. If we think about the election we've just had, we know that the Teals were able to very strongly identify, partly through um, uh, the, the way they were understood in the in the kind of a macro sense, in the broader sense, even outside their electorates, as people who are standing for faster action on climate change, for women's rights, for uh, uh, for doing something about integrity in politics. These are policy-type questions. Now, yes, there were personality elements about this. Uh, as, as Ian says, you know, Morrison's unpopularity was probably a, a strong turn-off factor for a number of inner-urban liberals. But there are policy heads here as well, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would, I would agree with that. Um, though I would 
be, I would not claim to be a voting behavior expert by any stretch. And so I would definitely bow to the wisdom of my esteemed colleagues <laughs> in this pod cave when I, I, and I guess kind of ask, like, I mean, I know that we don't really have a good understanding of vote choice on issues outside of economic voting, right? Like, isn't that broadly speaking fair to say we don't fully understand those mechanisms. So, you know, what was what was potentially going on here, you know, is it um that it's kind of potentially like a, a reaction to to Scott Morrison who kind of embodies these three policy pillars um or perhaps it's, you know, I guess because you've sort of made the point that many teal voters were labor and greens voters voting strategically, but I suppose for that 18% of ex-liberal voters what might be driving that is actually quite interesting, really, what might be the cue there? I'm sure it was probably to do with climate change, Mm. um, trust integrity, treatment of women in parliament and so on. I would disagree a bit with the idea that people are voting on policies, that in fact there is any significant difference between the major parties and policy, because what we see is very few economic differences these days. I mean, the parties are not arguing about the free market versus collectivization but, or the but, role but there of the were strong, state. Sorry to interrupt, but there were strong differences on the three things you just mentioned. Yes, but there were not particularly core public policy issues in a sense. Maybe trust and integrity was because it was to do with how money was expended. But the, the, the important point I think is that what voters evaluate parties on these days is performance. And we actually saw that very much in this election because they marked the government down on their economic performance, on their performance in the pandemic, and also the performance of the prime minister, rather than on real distinct policy differences. And we find in our surveys, fewer and fewer people see any significant differences between the parties based on policy. That's fascinating. Okay, I have a super nerd question, and um, Sarah, feel free to jump in um, if you know the answer to this. But is, I mean, do we actually have a good grip on what climate change is kind of doing to the electorate? Like, is it an orthogonal cleavage? Is it actually just a left-right cleavage? Like, what what is kind of driving the, how is climate change meaningfully driving the vote? Is it actually functioning in that way at all? So when we ask people what their top policy issues are in the electorate, Uh, Climate and the environment has featured more strongly in this election and also in the 2019 election. So back in 2016, just 10% of Australians said that an environmental issue was their top election concern. That jumped to one in five voters in the previous election and declined very slightly to 17% in this election. So it's not the top election issue, and generally what we find is the economic issues are considered the top election concern, but it is important for a number of voters. It is particularly important for young people. That's what we see in our data. And when we ask uh, people across the political spectrum about how important climate changes to them in their vote, even though only a minority of voters say it is their top election concern, a majority of voters for all the major party groupings uh, say that the issue is important to them. Yeah, right. Fascinating. What I'm interested in here, I'm interested in your thoughts, both of you on this, is this notion about what sort of uh, what led to the Teals wins, right? I mean, eighteen percent of Liberal voters going to community independence or Teals, as we call them, is a very high number in my mind. It's a it's a that's a lot of voters. I mean, we're talking about yes, there's a, a degree of strategic voting going on, so that preferences are distributed to the Teal candidate finishing second, but there's an abandonment by. Uh, by of the Liberal Party by people who've probably never voted anything other than Liberal in their lives. That's a pretty significant development, I would have thought. Well, it means those people can actually go back to the party they've come from. They can, but they've broken the habit of a lifetime. And I'd, I'd be interested to know whether there's any research about this, whether people, voters who have always voted for a major party, because we talk a lot about the breakdown of the major party groups, and you mentioned before how they this will often manifest as a sort of a protest vote, and it may well be that that's what happened here. We'll know a little bit more about that when we see subsequent elections. But I wonder if once you've broken away, you do come back. Some people probably don't. 
Some people don't, but the general pattern is people do go back. And what we know about political parties is they're infinitely adaptable. They'll see an existential threat to their core support. They'll change their appeal. They'll get better candidates and they'll reinvent themselves. And if we go back, say, to Britain in the 1980s, everybody wrote off the British Labour Party mm. under Michael Foote. And then guess what? Tony Blair came along with New Labour and won three general elections after that. Yeah, he did so, a fair bit of hard work to change it, didn't Absolutely, he? but political parties come back. So mm. what we've seen here has been a seismic shift in people's voting behaviour. It's been really a realigning election and so on. But it's probably too early to, to write parties off and also to say that people aren't going to go back to the party they came from if they made a, a protest vote. Well, that's quite fascinating. I mean, you know, ultimately it's saying that it's in the, it's in party, in the party, the court of parties or whatever. However, you would say that more delicately. I have one more nerd question and then I promise to stop asking questions. Um, but I, I'm quite interested. I've seen a lot of chatter on Twitter around asset ownership being a better predictor for vote choice than income. Is this, is this what is actually reflected in uh, the data? It is. Assets are much more important than anything else except generation in predicting mm -hmm. how people vote. So if we go back 20, 30 years ago, it was social class, it was income, it was your occupation. We've had things like supervision, the proportion of people who work for the state, uh, things like that, which have really undercut occupation. And since then, we've had ownership of assets. So we've got about one in five people are in a family that own a self-managed super fund or an investment property. Uh, about half the population own shares. About 65% of the population have, own their own home. Assets are by far the most important thing in the economic sphere that predicts how people vote, and it's increasing. And one of the interesting things we find in the survey is that uh, dissatisfaction with democracy tends to be highest among people aged in their 30s and early 40s. When you drill into the data, what is driving a lot of that is the fact they can't get onto the housing market. And we've seen in the ABS statistics that home ownership has been declining over the last 10 years. It's been declining particularly among this group who are getting married, having children, wanting to move into their own home and so on. And it's contributing a lot to that. Which is a deep irony given, um, you know, that was one of Menzies' uh, core aspirations when he took office in 1949, which was to undo Labor's public housing kind of model. Uh, Sarah, I wonder if I could put this last question to you. Uh, the well, I, I may seem obsessed by this whole question of community independence and teals and the, the phenomenon, but... Um, one of the things I was very critically aware of through the lead up to the election, particularly in the campaign, perhaps a little more aware than some other people reporting the election, um, was the, the sheer size and scale and enthusiasm of the community movements behind these candidates. You know, so I know I'm sort of harping back to this uh, discussion I just had with Ian about um, the nature of people people's decision to leave the party that they'd voted for for their whole lives, but. In, in places like uh, Frydenberg, seat of Kuyong, in, in, in suburbs like Hawthorne, where, where economically well-off people were suddenly wearing T-shirts and there was a whole, you know, uh, Sophie Scomps in, in Sydney was, you know, filling halls. Uh, people were coming to see. The, the enthusiasm around these community candidates was something that the major political parties could only look on with, with envy. They, they, they've, they've been around a long time, but they don't get that kind of enthusiasm around them. Those people, now I know that that's not all of their voters, but those people constitute a significant personal commitment to a new way of politics. I wonder, I'm assuming that you will be of the view that you know, that we'll need more data on this, so we'll need subsequent elections. Is that the thing you're most eager to learn about, uh, you know, using this election and then thinking forward to whatever we learn from the next election and subsequent ones? Is that the thing you're most interested in learning about or is there some other um, thing that, you know, some other aspect that the data points to that you think is really fascinating? Happy to talk more about the community independence, which I think is really fascinating development in the 2022 election. Although another area that we haven't touched on, which is perhaps uh, the most interesting finding from 
2022 study is uh, trends in terms of gender and generation and what that means for the future of the coalition. The coalition has lost a huge amount of support from women with uh, just 32% of women in the most recent election voting for the coalition, which is the lowest that it's ever been. And we also see in terms of generation that we are not seeing life cycle changes like we might expect. So based on the idea of life cycle changes, this is the view that younger people as they get older will shift their preferences from the left to the right of politics. But we're not seeing that with younger generations, particularly with the millennials who are now getting older. The oldest millennials are in their late 30s and early 40s. Instead, what we're seeing is that millennials have actually shifted to the left. And so this has major implications for the coalition as through processes of generational replacement, these younger generations replace older generations with just one in four voters under the age of 40 supporting the coalition in this election. Yeah, that's... One in four. Wow. Sorry. Sorry. No, no, that no, that is fascinating. It's 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 really interesting. I mean, I I again, I I feel like the that that figure of thirty two percent women that's a that's a staggering figure, really. It's a, you know a third of females are lining up. Their votes are ending up in the. Is that ending up in the coalition column, or is that first preferences? That's our first preferences. And with the gender trends, what we have seen is a reversal over time in the gender gap in voter behaviour. So back in the 1990s, women were slightly more likely to vote for the coalition. Men were slightly more likely to vote for Labor. Over time, the gender gap has reversed and it has also widened so that in the last three elections, the gender gap has been greater than at any point in the past. And it presents a particular problem for the coalition because following the election result, they have reduced representation in parliament broadly, mm. but reduced representation of women in particular. So with diminished capacity to address their declining support among women. So I guess it presents a, a, a bit of a problem analytically as well, because again, we see this crossover. It's not purely a coincidence that the Teal candidates are women uh, and that they one of their key core values as candidates was to promote the idea of better rights for women, better treatment of women in politics, better representation of women in politics. So they're, they're hard to disentangle some of these things, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And also linking that back to people's dissatisfaction with the performance of the Liberal National Coalition government, which fed into this mobilisation that you discussed behind the Teal independence. And then what happens in 2025, we'll need to wait and see, but it would depend upon the performance of the current Labor government uh, and also the performance of the Teals during this next government. Yes, and I suppose the extent to which the coalition is seen and to move, uh, you know, to, to change its form. You, you talked earlier about political parties being infinitely flexible. Well, we don't see any sign of flexibility from uh, the Peter Dutton-led uh, coalition at the moment. We we see he opposed the, um, the 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 legislating of interim targets and 2050 target. Um, you know, he hasn't done anything in relation to quotas for women. Yes, they've 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 agreed with the the government on the uh, on the on the integrity commission. Uh, we don't know what they're going to do on the voice. There's not a lot of movement really from the coalition so far on some of these things. So uh, there's a there's a job of work for them to do if they are going to evince the kind of flexibility needed to have voters sit up and listen and say yes, I'm going to come back. There is, but we're really only seven or eight months away from the election. And I always think of political parties being like a, a large oil tanker. If yeah. they have to, they have to shift direction. It takes a long time. It takes miles and hours and so on. Oil tanker could be a quite appropriate uh, image. <laughs> well, you know, you did raise Michael Foot and Tony Blair, and that was only eighteen years. So, <laughs> <laughs> good point. Look, yeah. thank you so much uh, for this uh, this Australian election study. As I say, it's the longest running survey of Australian elections, and absolutely uh, critical. Data 
data set that comes out tells us things that you know pundits can and, and analysts can go on after elections with every sort of impression they they like to to put forward, but then the AES comes out and tells us actually what's happened. So it's a, it's a great privilege to uh, to have you in the in the studio, Ian and Sarah, and uh, and also to um, to be able to you know have this product coming out of ANU and in this case Griffith University as well. Thank you very much, Mark. Thanks so much, Mark and Maria. Yeah, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. As I mentioned earlier, and I'll just hammer this point again, we are doing our last episode next week, which for the year, that is, not uh, not forever, unless there's some sort of, you know, terrible sort of economic Don't fiat. Don't talk about things like that. <laughs> but, uh, yes, we're, we're doing the awards ceremony uh, where we award best, uh, best, you know, best politician, best performance, and a whole range of fairly funny. Most ignoble. Yeah. Most notorious. Yeah, that's right. Most risible uh, attempt at explaining the uh, unexplainable or whatever it might be. Uh, if you've got an idea for what would be a funny category and perhaps a few nominations, then feel free to uh, put them to us. You can do that on APPS Policy Forum. That is at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter. Or you can email us at podcast at policyforum.net. Uh, and uh, there may be a Democracy Sausage Keep Cup at the end of that, which is some sort of reward. Not much, but some sort of reward. We'll look forward to it. See you next week, guys. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.